Good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, do you feel good this morning? You, did you actually get an extra hour of sleep? Today is a 25-hour day. We should really take advantage of it. Yeah, great. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors. It's an absolute joy to be here with you on this Sunday morning. I've got like 18 announcements and about five minutes worth of preaching to do today. Uh, so I'm just kidding. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I've got a few announcements for you. Announcement number one, uh, we just hosted our second annual fall festival, Trunk or Treat. Did anyone show up at that? Yeah, uh, it was a huge success. Uh, we don't know how many people we had, but we're going to guess there were like, uh, I don't know, 82,000 people here or something. <laughs> I think the number, it was more than last year, about 4,000 people. Uh, we'll show you some pictures of that. A lot of people volunteered. Thank you guys so much for volunteering. Thank you so much for investing in that. Uh, we asked you guys to bring in 1,000 pounds of candy. Uh, the last total we had was you brought in 1,600 pounds of candy. Can, can you see this box? Where I'll pick it up. This box right here. This is literally all the candy we have left. It's the misfit candy. It's like Whompers and like that chewing gum that lasts for like five seconds and Tootsie Rolls. So like, thanks be to God, we gave away a lot of candy. Uh, I don't know, we were doing also who had the best decorated car. Uh, guess who won that? Pastor Freddie. And you can see right here, him and Inez, they dressed up as... Uh, as Alice in Wonderland. So it was a great time. Thank you. Thank you all to do that as well. And then yesterday, our uh, GPS Grace Point students hosted their pancake breakfast. Uh, anybody show up for that one? A bunch of you. Great. Hey, they, they did uh, 600 pancakes, 40 pounds of bacon, 40 pounds of bacon. Your heart is saying, stop it. Lord, 20 pounds of sausage. They get clogged right in the arteries. And uh, you guys raised over $1,800. So all that goes to Grace Point students going to the camp. And then uh, our next announcement is we have a spiritual warfare, warfare mini conference coming up. Our friend Dr. Gary Bashirs will be hosting that. This is one of his specialties. And so there's no childcare and it is absolutely free. So make sure you show up on that it's Saturday. It's the 19th of November. Don't wait. People are waving at me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, um, I need to do this. What, huh? Just yell it out loud, it's cool. Oh. <laughs> all right, I gotta start all over again because I was not centered. <laughs> They're back there pointing and doing this. I'm like, what? I'm not centered for the online thing, cool. Anyway, uh, make sure you don't miss that. It's uh, Dr. Gary, Gary Bashir's, it'll be great. And then also on the 19th, you know we filled those Thanksgiving boxes, right? A bunch of you took those out, you filled them up, you put five pounds of the, uh, the crusty onions in there or something like that. It was amazing, right? Uh, so now we get an opportunity to deliver those. And so if you're available on November the 19th uh, to deliver that, what a great opportunity it is to go actually see smiles on faces and go deliver those to families in need. If you would, there's a QR code. The third one on the right is the black one. If you will scan that and sign up for it, or go to gracepointvegas.com or go out there. We're going to need people to take those out. And then also today we're hosting Starting Point at 4.30. So if you're new to Grace Point Church, you're new to Las Vegas, and you really haven't met anyone or maybe you're just not connected well, come here at, actually out in the lobby at 4.30. There'll be uh, pastors, staff, people of Grace Point Church, hot coffee, cold coffee, treats, and just an uh, impromptu way to get to know some people. We're not going to stand up there and give you a big sales spill and make you sign up for stuff. It's just basically getting to know people. It's kind of like speed dating without the dating part on it. It'll be a lot of fun. You get to rotate around and get to meet other people. It will be great. Some of you heard dating. You're like, what? I'm going to do that. No. Uh, anyway, it'll be great. So make sure you show up for that. And then lastly, lastly, uh, we're coming to the end of the year. I want to draw everyone's attention to that wall over there. See that wall? 
and there's that weird-looking thing on the wall over there. Can you see the wall? The wall? You might have to stand up and take a look at it. It's right over there. Can you see it? Yeah, so what is that? Well, we are doing an end-of-the-year giving campaign called Beyond, and so on that wall are magnets, and on these magnets are, are uh, the people that we support overseas and Acts 29 as well. And so you'll see El Salvador. You'll see a picture of Carlos Amaya is the one I have on here. Andrew Elder from Ireland, if you were here a few weeks ago, he's on there. Uh, Arjuna from India, Karim from Turkey, and then also Acts 29 as well. And what we're looking to do as a church, we're starting it this week and it'll go all the way to December 31st. What we want to do is we want to raise $100,000 above and beyond of our normal uh, to give completely beyond the walls of Grace Point Church. So every dollar will go outside of here. It'll go to church planning, hopefully locally, and then also globally, and then it will help support our partners. And so this year, as you're thinking about Christmas time of giving gifts, why not give the gift of church planning and disciple making all around the world? So we're asking you to go visit that wall at the end of the gathering time and look on there. There's different amounts all the way, I think, from 10 bucks to like 5,000 bucks. Take one, take two. They're like Pokemon. Collect them all if you want. That's fine. And you will take these and you'll scan the QR code and you'll be able to go to our giving site to where you can give. And then also you'll be able to put these on your refrigerator or some type of metal and you'll have their face in front of you all the time where you can be thinking about them and praying for them, okay? So don't miss that opportunity. Maybe this opportunity to go home and pray about what the Lord would have you to give, but this is above and beyond and it'd be a great opportunity for us as a church uh, just to celebrate what God is doing and to contribute to what God is doing uh, beyond us, beyond these walls here. Uh, so don't miss that opportunity to do that. And then uh, throughout the coming weeks, you're going to hear stories from Karim, from Arjuna, from uh, Carlos and Myra, from Andrew, from all of them. So we'll be watching out for those stories. Sound good? Yep. Yes. Whew. All right, let's get into the message. Today we're con- almost, almost close to concluding our teaching series through the book of Esther. Uh, if, uh, next week will be the conclusion, so make sure you do not miss that as we conclude this teaching series. Uh, if you've missed any of it, you can go back to our website, go to YouTube, or you can just read the first eight chapters of the book and you will get it. But the theme that has emerged over and over and over in this book that does not mention God, yet it shows uh, powerfully the providential nature of God, his sovereignty. It shows that God is in charge even when you cannot see him, which is a good message to us to hear as well. And we kind of illustrate it this way, that uh, throughout the Bible and through our lives, you can kind of see God's visible hand, like his miracles and his activities, like, yeah, that's God, I can see that. But then also he has an invisible hand where he's always working behind the scenes for his glory and for the good of his people. And that's what we see time and time again the book of Esther. Now, let me get us caught up that way if you've missed a week or something like that, that you're not kind of lost feeling like you're walking into the last part of a movie. Uh, But there was basically this law in the Persian Empire. Persian Empire was huge, 127 providences. It goes from the west side of Africa to the east side of India, lots and lots and millions and millions of people. Well, uh, there was a king, King Ahasuerus. He had a number two in charge, his vice president, number two in charge, his name was? Haman. Haman, good guy, bad guy. Very bad guy. Even we said weeks ago that we feel like that Satan was kind of empowering him because of his, his purpose to kill God's people. And that was, a, that was a big plot of Satan as well. And so Haman's in charge. And one of the things about Haman, Haman wanted honor. And so when you got in Haman's presence, when you walked by Haman, you were to bow. And there was a guy by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai's a Jewish guy. And Mordecai refused to bow. And because he refused to bow, instead of punishing just Mordecai, Haman, he says, you know what? I'm going to get all the Jews. And so he wrote a law. And the law would go throughout all the land that 15 million Jewish people, all the Jewish people, men, women, and children would die on a certain day, 11 months from when they wrote the law. It's a very, very bad thing. 
So Mordecai, he goes to his younger cousin. Her name is Esther. She is the queen. She's married to the king and says, hey, you need to beg on our behalf and make sure the king makes this law uh, go away. And she's like, well, let me tell you, uh, here's the thing about the law of the Persians and Medes. Those laws don't go away. They're irrevocable laws. There's nothing we can do about it. Nonetheless, if I go to the king, I could die. So what does she do? She goes to the king for such a time as this, and she begs for the people on their behalf. And basically, the king finds out that Haman, his number two, is plotting. And what does the king do to Haman? Kills him. Hangs him on the, skewers him kind of somewhat on the 75-foot gallow that he had built for Mordecai. But now we still have that pesky law. And so what does the king do? He makes Mordecai the number two in the kingdom, gives him the signet ring, his power. And so Mordecai writes another law that kind of supersedes or overlaps this law of the sentence of death over the Jewish people. And so now we're fast forwarding. We're getting to the point where this law is going to come in effect, both of those laws, and we're going to see what's going to happen. Are the Jewish people going to die or are they going to defend themselves? What's going to happen? Well, now we get to see. Today is what we'll know as D-Day. And that D-Day is two different Ds there. For some people, it'll be the day of deliverance. For other people, it will be the day of destruction. So if you've got your Bible, go to Esther chapter 9, and that's where we'll be today. Esther 9, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. We want you to have one. We have them in English and Spanish right up here in front, out at Center Point as well. And if you have a smartphone, version. You know I say this every week, right? That's how important it is very, very important. Plus, I know there are guests with us. I want them to know, hey, we preach from the Bible. So there's you version as well. You can download that. But Esther chapter 9, um, as we get ready to approach verse 1 of chapter 9, I want you to pay attention of the complexities of this, like the plot twists and turns, the dynamic of what's going to go on in this great battle between God's people and the enemy. It is a page turner. It is a twist of M. Night Shyamalan. It is wonderful. Are you ready to see it? Here it goes. Verse 1. Are you there? Hmm. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edicts were about to be carried out, so now both laws, the day has come. It's D-Day. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's it. (laughs) Period. The end. One verse, and you already know how the story ends. It's like someone just told you the score, and now you got to watch the, the game play out. It's like, that's it. That the Jewish people, God's people, gained mastery over those who hated them. There's no real drama right here, no anything like that. But you know what? We should have come to this conclusion because of earlier on in the story. If you remember earlier on in the story, when Mordecai goes to Esther, Mordecai's like, Esther, Esther, you need to go to the king. There's this really bad law, and then we're all going to die. And she's like, but she's hesitant. She's like, well, we might die. Do you remember the words of Mordecai all the way back in Esther 4? It says this, Esther 4.14. This is Mordecai talking to Esther. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. And I said during that week, like, that's Mordecai. I think it's, it's his faith moment right there. He believed somehow, some way that God was going to deliver them. Maybe he remembers the prophets of old. Maybe he remembers the prophet Jeremiah saying that God's going to protect them and God will deliver his people. I don't know. But let's not be surprised that God delivers his people. We see that throughout history that God delivers his people. As a matter of fact, you ever read the end of the Bible, Revelation And we see that God delivers his people. You ever notice like in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus delivers his people 
And he doesn't even get off his horse when he does it. It's that swift. It's like Jesus comes back and bam, that's it. He's not even dismounting the horse. He's like just sitting up there like, I'm back, everybody. Be gone. You ever, you ever get into Revelation chapter 20? There's this scene in there where Satan and the evil forces that are coming to attack God and God's people. And you kind of you feel like in one of those moments, it's going to be like a, a Lord of the Ring battle. Remember, you ever seen Lord of the Ring? Like, or, or, or like maybe you haven't, maybe uh, Gladiator, like it's going to be all this hitting with swords and stabbing and poking and stuff and bows in there. All right, for, for some of you younger, remember Harry Potter? <laughs> remember at the end, Spelioso, you know, whatever they do. Or like Star Wars, pew, pew, pew. Like, you think it's going to be like one of those big things? Watch what happens. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain, that'd be the enemy, of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. <laughs> Not much of a battle right there. And the devil who had been deceived, uh, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No massive war. Jesus returns. Game over. That's it. Now, uh, I, don't get caught up on your eschatology. Sometimes we worry about the who, the what, wins, and all the things going on in the battles and time periods. Know this about the end. You ready? Write this down. Jesus wins. <laughs> That's it. And we live, if you're in Christ, you live happily ever after with him. Soul meets body, we're perfected, and we're Jesus forever. Isn't that great? Heaven meets earth, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus wins in the end. Just like we see a microcosm of it right here in the story of Esther, that God delivers his people. God wins. Verse one again. I want to show you the, the last part of verse one because I'm really proud of God's people. You ever read the Bible? And as a, if you're uh, adopted, if you're one of God's people and you see God's people do something really good, you're like, man, I'm proud of them. Way to go, us. Well, look at the end of verse one. It says, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Mastery. I like that word. It's control. They could have been on a vengeance tour of like, hey, you guys are going to defeat us. And so we're just going to like just, you know, just go obliterate all of you. And we're going to do all these bad things to you and all kinds of things. But no, it means, and when you look at the law and the way it's written, it means, and what they've done, and we'll see in just a moment, all they did was defended themselves. They didn't loot. They didn't enslave. They had self-control, mastery of them, and mastery of themselves. I love that part. Now, how did they win the war? How did, like, what types of tools did they use to initiate the battle? Was it like, you know, bows and arrows? Was it like an army tank? Was it like an outfitted camel with like missiles and laser beams? and all? Why, What was it? Look at verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the providence of King Ahasuerus to lay hand on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. Why? What was their weapon of choice? For the fear of them had fallen on all the people. I'm going to argue that the weapon of choice right here was fear. Was fear. Remember last week we left off where pagans, we believe, were dropping their idols, no longer worshiping false gods. And because of fear, they started worshiping uh, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God, the one and only God. Look back at Esther 8, 17. It says this, and in every providence and every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I'm, I'm going I'm to argue or guess for that this fear came from a, fe a people who feared the Lord and their trust was in the Lord. 
And so I think the, the, the potential of what happened is God set fear in the Gentiles' hearts of his people because he was behind them and he was with them. Make sense? Uh, I've heard many people uh, use language in which you can tell they do not fear the Lord. I would argue that's probably one of the greatest problems in the world today is that people do not fear God. I've had people tell me before as a pastor, no one can judge me, only God can judge me. And I'm like, I would rather have everyone judge me and God not judge me if I'm not with Christ. Like this is the, this, and, and that idea of fear of the Lord is there is some like fear, some, some holy terror. And like God is big and God is amazing. God is the creator and God can smite, smoke, whatever the tense is, me any moment. But yet there's this fear of awe and respect and adoration to where I submit to God. I surrender to God. I'm humbled by God. And many people want nothing to do with that. I would argue that's one of the greatest problems in the world is there is no fear of God. But we have to kind of turn that back in on ourselves of why does the world no longer fear God? Well, maybe they haven't seen the people of God fear God. Is there such devotion to God among God's people that an outsider would want to fear God and follow God? Brennan Manning said it like this, and it's one of my favorite Brennan Manning quotes. It won't be on the screen because I was thinking of it this morning. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyles. What, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Perhaps as us, as Christians, we should have a fear of the Lord. And as we live with this reverence, with this obedience, with this awe, with this this terror of like, I don't, I don't want to sin against the Lord. He's not going to condemn me because he condemned Christ on my behalf. And yet I still, I still have this healthy amount of fear, of respect, of authority. He's my authority. What if we were to walk like that amongst the outsiders? It might change some things. Yet I believe in this text, it's the fear of the Lord that won this battle. Yeah, swords and all that, but it was the fear of the Lord. Verse three, <laughs> this is interesting. Don't miss over this. All the officials of the providences and the satraps and the governors and the royal... Agents also help the Jews, period. Do you hear that? The government got involved in that. (laughs) For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the providences. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The government got involved to help God's people. I mean, could you imagine? It'd be like Pelosi, AOC, (laughs) oh, Mitch McConnell, Teddy Cruz, Sisolak, DeSantis, and you notice there, I did half and half, because I didn't want you to think, oh, Ty's a Republican, oh, Ty's a Democrat. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. But could you imagine, like, if they got involved with the people of God for the purposes of God, what that would look like? That would be an act of God, wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely would. Side note, voting's coming, am I right? Can't wait for that. Get off my television screen. Get out of my mailbox. Hey, side note... <laughs> Seriously, all, all kidding aside, hey, um, may, I think it's a good thing to vote. It's a civil responsibility to vote. Voting is good. I think there's a spiritual responsibility in voting as well. And so uh, who should you vote for? Well, that's between you and God. You need to figure that out. But let's, let's do that. That's a good thing. Let me keep going. Let me keep going. Don't get too far down that rabbit hole. Whew. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Some of you out there right now are careful. Easy. And that might be a sign of your idolatry. Let's keep going. Verse 5. <laughs> I got an extra hour of sleep. Verse 5. Oh, 
The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And so they basically says they struck all them. Some of us might say, whoa, 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 I thought God was a God of peace. Well, God is a God of peace after he destroys all of his enemies. And I think God is going to destroy all of his enemies with the cross, either through the, through the condemning of Christ on their behalf or through condemnation that comes apart from Christ. But at the end, the Lord will crush all of his enemies. Should we take up arms now? If we, when we read texts like this, I'm like, well, this is what we should do. We should go out and, you know, get swords and, and bows and arrows and, you know, poke our enemies or whatever. No, don't do that. History has shown us that uh, either we either end up completely embarrassed by that or it's just an absolute uh, bad situation for us as Christians to do that. But we have a new weaponry as Christians. You ever read the New Testament? You know what our weapons are now? The armor of God. Why? Because we're not fighting against uh, flesh. We're fighting against principalities and ideologies and against the enemy himself. And so our, our weapons of war are no longer swords and guns and all that kind of stuff. Our weapons are war of prayer and the gospel and the Bible, and love and kindness and mercy and truth. And so we have a great war ahead of us that we fight with those weapons. But we see right here that they did some fighting and, and it looks like the way the, the writer is writing this, that it was an effortless victory on their behalf. Verse 6, we're going to get some details. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Um, now, remember the second law of Mordecai, they could only defend themselves. So if someone were to aggress against, if someone's aggressive, someone's taking offense, the Jewish people, God's people can defend themselves. Keep that in mind. That's very important. Uh, they defended themselves. Verse 7, and also killed. Now, Brandon did a phenomenal job reading those names. <laughs> Uh, you, ever, uh, you ever heard of the comedian Brian Regan? He's hilarious. He did this one bit called Hooked on Phonics, and he said, hook it in on Pohonics, work it for me. You're like, so anyway, uh, Hooked on Phonics did not work for me, but for the sake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this, and let's go. So there's names, and who also killed Parsh, Parshandatha, and Dolphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Adartha, and Parmashta, and Arsai, and Ardai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, uh, sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So here's the Bible 101. Read them real fast. No one knows. <laughs> so who are these people? These are the sons of Haman. The sons of Haman. Uh, they died. It is thought, perhaps, that uh, maybe they were aggressive toward the Jewish people and they had to kill them. Or in ancient culture, uh, when you're going against the enemy, you also kill off their sons as well so they don't later on grow up and try to retaliate. Uh, so perhaps that is as well. Uh, but I think it's interesting that the Bible writer, inspired by the Spirit, put these names in here. And why? Uh, one, I think to dishonor Haman because he's the enemy. And two, I think it's to warn us as well. I mean, these are names. These are souls. These are someone's children. And Haman was a egregiously sinful man, prideful, egotistical, a horrible human being. And I would only guess that he raised his sons to be like himself, like father, like son. And he led his sons to death. And so that tells us, a, there's a clue there for us as parents. There's some implications for us there as parents that we need to lead our sons and daughters in the proper and right way. And so we need to lead our sons and daughters into the things that the Lord loves and into the things that the Lord hates. 
Not what we love and what we hate, because that at times may be different than the Lord. We want those to line up, am I right? But we need to be very, very careful that we lead our children to the things that the Lord loves and lead our children into what the things that the Lord hates. I think there's a, I think there's a clue for us to pick up on why the writer put it there. But nonetheless, let me keep going. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa of the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, so now the king's getting the report, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, men, and also 10 sons of Haman, uh, what they have done in the rest of the kingdom's providences. Now, what is your wish? So he's asking Esther, what do you want? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And so these two laws are playing out, and the king's getting reports on this. Now he goes to Esther and says, what, do you, what else do you want? It's like a blank check to Esther. What will she ask for? Verse 13. Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. You know what she's asking for? One more day. The original, the original law, both of those, was just for one day. She's asking for a day too. One more day. How will the king respond? Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And so he gives her her request for a second day. The queen asked for one more day in which the Jews could de defend themselves. And then she also asked for the ten sons of Haman, who are already dead, to be hanged on the gallows. Now, what's the point of this if the ten sons are already dead? Well, when you see the ten sons of Haman hanged on the gallows, it's a public declaration of like, hey, don't be like that. Don't do that. The kingdom will not tolerate that. That's a, that's a big statement right there. But I think we need to ask the question, was Esther right in asking for one more day of basically war? One more day of killing. Was she right in that? Well, what does the text say? Nothing. It neither condemns nor vindicates her. If you go read some commentaries, some commentaries will say, this, this is just who Esther is. She's vindictive. She's bloodthirsty. That's why they call her Esther, because like part of the, part of the, she's named after Ishtar, the Persian god of love and war. Some commentators will go down that, that path. I don't think so. I disagree with that. Some, some commentators say she was right to wipe out all those people who wanted to harm the people of God. Like, like many other aspects of the book of Esther, however, we cannot make a definitive call of her motive of innocence or guilt. But I will say this. I think there is a history lesson to be learned from Esther of why she wanted one more day. Perhaps there, she heard of a plot or something like that. But I, I think there's a reason why she wanted one more day, to finish up some unfinished business. Uh, let's, let's play a little, little trivia together. What was Haman? Do you remember where he came from? What was he called? An Agagite. Say it with me. It's a fun word to say. Agagite. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Papa, right? <laughs> the original vegan hero. All right. What was Mordecai? Jewish. Question. History, Bible history question. Do Jewish people and, and Agagites or Amalekites, where they come from, get along? They do not. A little walk down history lane. You go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, wipe them all out. 
and remove the memory of them. Those are people that are going to be a thorn in your side, and they're going to hate you forever, and they're always going to want to your demise, so wipe them all out. You get to the book of Exodus. You've seen the book of Exodus when they get past uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, they come around the backside of the big party, the big caravan of God's people, and they start picking off the elderly, the weak, the young, and all that, and so they're kind of like terrorists right there. And so they're really, really bad people. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You got uh, one of the kings. His name is Saul. God told Saul to do two things with the Agagites. You know what he told him to do? Number one, destroy them all. Number two, do not take, do not plunder any of their goods. What did Saul do? He did not kill them all, and he took all their stuff. <laughs> God said, kill them, uh, destroy them all, kill them all and do not take their stuff, and he did the river. He let some live, and then he took a bunch of their stuff. So if he would have been obedient, King Saul would have been obedient, there would have been no Haman. Make sense? And so I, I'm going to suggest part of the providence of God, the invisible hand of God, was Esther being obedient to finish out the plan in which God had spoke a long, long ago. To, and reminded, let me remind you, all they're doing is defending themselves because that's what's in the law and that's what our text tells us. They're defending it. So maybe there was a plot that they found out about, out about the second day and they wanted to defend themselves more. Verse 15. Make sense? Yes. Maybe. Verse 15. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar to kill 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. They protected themselves, defended themselves, but they laid no hands on the plunder. The law said they could, but they did not do it. They did not do it. Remember, the law also says, Mordecai's law says they can kill women and children. But this, the text always says men. So I don't think they killed women and children. And I think they didn't plunder because it was a sign of goodwill to leave the women and children some goods. Maybe, maybe not. Speculation. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's providence and also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. We need to be reminded this is somewhat of a war scene. The people are attacking God's people. and Their plot is to kill, to murder, and to plunder all of the Jewish people, men, women, and children as well. And what God has done, God has given them the opportunity to reverse the decree. That way they can defend themselves. This is justifiable, we would say. You, you ever watch the movie? You ever watch a movie? You ever watch a movie? And in the movie, there's a scene to where there's a village and there's men, women, and children there, and they're all being drug out of their houses, or all their dwellings, and they're all lined up there. There's men, women, and children, and there's this evil force there, and the evil force there, they got machetes, or they got guns, or they got something like that. And they just start shooting people, and they start mistreating the women, and start mistreating the children, and eventually killing them as well, and burning down their houses. You ever seen movies like that? You ever heard of a story like that? And then off, you know, over a little bit to the next village or at the village, you know, boundary line, there are the opposing, the good forces. Now, do you want the good forces to come in there and to engage it or to ignore it? Which one do you want? That's what's going on here. That they are engaging. God's people are, are forced to engage these people to defend themselves and to not be taken advantage of it. Why? Because basically they're, they're attacking them. And an attack on God's people is an attack on God. Let me say it again. An attack on God's people is an attack on God. Some of you are like, I don't know about that, mister. Well, hey, you remember that scene in the New Testament in the book of Acts? Uh, remember Paul? What was Paul called before he was Paul? Was Saul a good guy or a bad guy? 
not a good guy. Killing, killing Christians, having them killed, and like he just, he just hated Christians. If you look in Acts chapter 9, verses 1, you see this right here. It's very interesting. But Saul, still bringing threats and murders against who? Hold, the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So who is he breathing murders, threats to? So the, to the disciples. I got you. And then a couple of verses down, verse 4, Jesus knocks him off the horse. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, this is from Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's the word right there? Who's the me in that text? But he wasn't, it was the disciples, right? An attack on God's people is an attack on God himself. God will defend himself. He'll defend you. What does that tell us? There's a clue. You no longer have to vindicate yourself. You no longer have to get vengeance. You no longer have to do anything. Why? If there's an attack on you, God's got you. It might not be in the way you think it's going to be, but God has you. He has you. Now, did you notice something at the end of the two verses here as well? Uh, it says that no plunder was taken. You notice the author has gone at great lengths to let us know that the Jewish people took no plunder. This was about defending themselves and not about fa financial gain. Do you know how hard that had to have been? Like, they're real humans like you. Please don't read the Bible and think they're not really like me. They're just like you. They're just like us in all ways. I can imagine them saying to themselves, because like the law said, I can take whatever I want. I could imagine them saying to themselves like, oh, this is like dirty money, but I sure can clean it up, right? I mean, could, could, could you imagine? I mean, they could have said, hey, it's legal. And yes, in the, at the time period, it was legal to kill the people and, and the women and children and take all of their positions. It was legal, but it was not ethical. Do you understand that? There's a difference between things being legal and ethical or legal and moral. And so it, it may be legal, but it might not be ethical or moral. And if it's not ethical or moral, it's not for us. Can, can we say that to you? It's not for me. If it's not legal and ethical, it's not, it is not for me. They could defend themselves but they could, not, they could legally go any further. Could, could you imagine their scenario? Let's say in their scenario, their neighbor's there, they want to kill them, they defend themselves, and, and they're a poor family, and they have six kids, and they probably started doing the math. If we kill six people that are coming against us, that means six homes, six possessions, six lifestyles for my, for my family. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, could you imagine if a law was passed of like, hey, if you kill someone, you're going to be a millionaire, and you'd be like, give me some names or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> slow your roll. Don't be like that. But like we, we would try to figure out, well, it's legal and I'm just trying to do my civic duty to like, you know, and like you would, and I'll tithe on it. Pastor, I'll tithe on it or whatever. I, I just want to say I'm proud of God's people right here. There's so many times you read the Bible, like not proud of God's people in that moment. There's so many times we look at our lives, not proud of God's person right now, proud of them right there. Just the self-control and the self-restraint, just this led by the spirit, I would argue that they didn't. I think it's great. Verse 17. Uh, this is going to be the end of our text. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa, remember they had an extra day, gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the village who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar and as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. And could you imagine the excitement of the day? It's over. For 11 months, they've had this, this, this sentence of death looming over them. And now it's finally over. They defeated the people that, that came against them. It says in the text over and over, there's feasting 
and gladness. Shouldn't there be even more feasting and gladness with us? Like this was a bad guy and a bad government coming against them that could threaten their lives, but we have an enemy that it feels like can threaten even our souls, and yet under that sense of death that God has released us, released us because of all of what Jesus has done. And so now we have even more reason to be glad and to feast and to party because we will not experience in Christ the death of our souls. Isn't that great news? That's the good news. And I think that's the connection. That's great, great news. Now, this story is such a reminder that God's people will be delivered and God's enemies will be defeated eventually. It's not always automatically. The closing of my time, I have two thoughts from this text. Two thoughts. Thought number one. Thought number one. Uh, why did the people, or why didn't the people of the, of the providence, the non-Jewish people, why didn't they heed the second law, the law of Mordecai? Why didn't they like pick up the clue phone that was ringing of like, hey, uh, the king and the kingdom has a new attitude towards the Jewish people. I should probably leave them alone. They're going to rally together and defend themselves and I could die. Like the question, my first thought is, why did they go ahead and attack the Jewish people? They were not forced to attack the Jewish people. We realize that from the text, right? The question I keep asking, why did they attack? Here's my thought. Haman is governed by something called the law of the Medes and Persians. You've probably read about that in history class. The law of the, uh, the Medes and Persians. And here's the thing about the law of the Medes and Persians, and we see its effect in this book as well, is when they write a law, there's no undoing the law. Remember the first law was written, even the king himself cannot undo the law. That's why we needed the second law right there. They could not back out of it. They could not get away from it. It's kind of like this idea, once the mind is made up, it is made up. You cannot and will not change. The course of action has been picked, and you have to go in that direction even if it leads to your own death. That is the law of Medes and Persian. It's a very strict, tight, rigid law, and I think that's why many of them attacked. The good news for us is that we don't live by the law of the Medes and Persians, although sometimes we act like we do. But as God's people, we have this thing called repentance, meaning we don't have to double down in our life. We don't have to keep going in the same direction. Repentance just means to turn. And so at any time we see ourselves going in a direction of death, and I don't mean like dying to Christ, I mean like just death, at any time we have a God who will receive us back and it's called repentance. We can turn at any moment. Now, I hear some of you right now like, well, Ty, the Bible tells me to make my yes, my yes, and my no, my no. Absolutely, unless it's just really dumb. <laughs> unless it leads to relational death, financial death, death of soul, death of peace, death of communing with Christ, then it's time to repent and turn. Some of us, we probably have never heard of the law of the Medes and Persians, and yet we live by it. You know how I know? Because we will never ask for forgiveness. Because we are never wrong. And anytime we are wrong, we just double down on it, and we can blame someone else, or we can shift the blame, or whatever that is, but we want to never be wrong. Why? Because repentance takes humility. Takes humility. And if we are so prideful, like the law of the Medes and the Persians, like Haman, if we are prideful, we will never admit that I am wrong. I'm telling you, I know us. I know my heart. Sometimes I want to be right. Even when I know I'm wrong, I want to make sure I can prove to everyone I'm right, even by doing the wrong thing, and it leads to some sort of death in my life. Are you like me as well? Don't act like you're not. 
And what we have from the Lord, and the Bible even says this, is we have repent, repentance. And it, there's a refreshment in repentance. And repentance is simply turning from the direction we're going and turning back to the Lord and his ways. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That he forgives, that he's merciful, and that he's gracious? Listen, listen. I think the example for us here is Haman. The example for us here is Haman's son, that there was no repentance. They, they did not have to attack God's people. They could have turned at any moment, and yet they didn't. My question to you is this. What has God been hounding you on to confess and repent? He's been hounding me in this past season on some things, hounding me. And I'm just like you, and you're just like me. And he's been hounding. What is it? He's been, and you're, and like, you're like, well, I'll do that Monday, and Monday's never come. What is it? Confess and repent. It's a wonderful thing. It is relieving to the soul. It will unburden your soul. It'll be good for you in all ways. Confess and repent. Second thing, second thing. Don't, second thought, don't quit in the middle. Do you imagine if Esther ended like, you know, chapter four or five? You'd be like, this is the most depressing book ever. Like, it's like Job, kind of. It's, it's just really depressing. Like, at the, in the middle of it, like, there's this law gone out that all the God's people are going to die, 15 million of them, and, and, and it would be really, really bad. But there's a different story going on in Esther. We can see that God's invisible hand is working all things out, and you've got to see it all the way to the end. The same thing is true about our lives. Don't judge God in the middle of your circumstance. And don't quit God in the middle of your circumstance. I, I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the life of many people. When life gets tough, when something's going on, it's a busted marriage, it's a busted health, it's a busted relationship, it's a busted job, it's busted family. Something like that happens. You, you zig and God zags and it didn't line up or whatever. We get mad at God and we just like, I'm out of here. If God's like this, I'm out of here. And we quit in the middle. This story tells us don't quit in the middle. See it through. Imagine if Jesus would have quit in the middle, like at the garden. Woo, God, this cup is too heavy for me. I'm done. That's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. You remember, Jesus on the cross, his last words were not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, no. His last words were, it is finished. And right before he says, it is finished, he says, to, to your hands, I commit my spirit. Meaning he didn't quit in the middle. He saw it all the way through. And as we know, looking back on history, resurrection happened. The same is true of our life. Don't quit in the middle. It might feel like death right now. I'm sure three days in the tomb felt like death as well. Resurrection is right around the corner. Don't quit at all. So many similarities between the story of Haman and the story of World War II with Hitler and the... Um, and Jewish people there, it's no wonder that many Jews in Europe during World War II cherished the book of Esther. If you read history, they loved the book of Esther. Why? Because they could see the end. Did you know that Hitler banned the reading of the book of Esther uh, during his final solution in World War II? He banned it. Why? He didn't want people to have hope. He didn't want people to see what could be the end. See, you can have the hope in the middle of your crisis. You can have hope in the middle of your busted marriage or your cancer or your kids' situation or your marriage situation or the uncertainty with your job and your finances or in the middle of your anxieties. You can have hope in the middle. No, that doesn't mean that God is going to instantly reverse everything right in the moment. It may not be until the end, but we know in the end, 
God wins. We know in the end, God delivers. We must hold on to that. Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things, what, is that what, what does it say? All things. Work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Do not give up on God in the middle of your crisis. Refer back to the book of Esther, what God can do in the end. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us, and I want to go to the Lord's table together. And, and perhaps if God has called you to a confession and repentance, maybe you would just pause on taking communion today. Maybe you use that opportunity to, to actually confess and repent of sin. But let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for, for your great love, your mercy, your kindness that does lead us to repentance. God, thank you for this story. What just a unique, complex, complicated story, but nothing complex and complicated about you winning in the end. So God, may we, may we have the faith of Esther and, and Mordecai there and the people. May, may we have the faith of them to, to trust you to deliver them in the end, that you will use us as a means, but you will deliver us in the end all because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. I pray, one, that if there is sin to be confessed, that Holy Spirit, you would guide them in that. You'd give them boldness and courage and humility to confess and repent of sin. May we be a repenting people, always walking in your ways and walking back to you. And Father, I also pray for my brothers and sisters right now, that in, in the thick of it, in, in crisis mode, whether it be marriage, finances, soul, health, parenting, family, whatever that is, God, would you help them to not give up in the middle, to see it all the way through, knowing, knowing that you are for them, that you are with them, and that you will deliver them. God, as you're moving today, Holy Spirit, as you're working today, May you grow us together closer to you and closer to one another. Give us great unity here. God, would you give us a heart for the lost, for those outside, knowing how good it is to be in Christ? Would we share this good news with others so they can be in Christ as well? God, would this be for the defeat of the enemy? And Jesus, ultimately, would all this be for your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.